nothing like getting up to preach a sermon after a song about amazing, life-transforming, spirit-moving. Lord, do the work. Do the work. Al Warden was an American test pilot. He was an engineer. And I think the coolest part of his job is that he was a NASA astronaut. And he's perhaps most known for piloting the command module of the 1971 Apollo 15 mission to the moon. And during his some 74 orbits around the moon, Warden got a perspective that most of us will never have. He recalls, I got to look at the universe with a very different perspective than anyone had before. And what I found was that the number of stars is just so immense. In fact, I I couldn't even pick up individual stars. It It was almost like a sheet of light. There are billions of stars out there, billions of galaxies, he reflects. So what does that tell you about the universe? That tells you we just don't think big enough. Stargazing aside, I actually think that Warden's conclusion speaks to a problem, a challenge that we Christians often experience. We just don't think big enough. More to the point, we don't think big enough about God. I've been there. I'm sure you've been there, right? We, we go through our days running from one appointment to the next, one evening event to the next. We're putting out fires at work, we're putting out fires at home maybe, we're hustling around from day to day, sometimes never thinking about God at all, barely making it to bed, only to wake up the next day and do it all over again. And when we do happen to find the time, our perspective about God and about his divine purposes are often short-sighted because After all, we're living in the moment and very often for the moment and therefore failing to grasp God's bigger picture. So how do we get that? How do we get a clearer, bigger perspective about God? To quote the former astronaut, Warden, he proposes, go behind the moon sometime, which is a nice enough suggestion for an astronaut, but the problem for most of us anyway is that we probably will not be joining Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos on any of their adventures into the final frontier anytime soon, but the good news is that we don't need to go to the moon to gain the right perspective about God or about life. We merely need to look to the sufficiency of his good word. And the passage of scripture that we'll be studying today, I hope and pray, turns our often short-sighted perspectives about God upside down. And so with that, I'd invite you to meet me in God's word in Psalm 90. Psalm 90. If you don't have a Bible uh, or you're not using the Bible on your smartphone or smart device, you are welcome to use the pew Bibles in front of you. In fact, if you don't own a Bible, just take that one with you. Uh, You can find this psalm on page 496 of the pew Bibles. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, 
You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is God's word. This incredible psalm is ascribed to Moses and is probably set at some point in Israel's wilderness period. It's beautifully written, as I'm sure you observed, and is just loaded with inspired truth. And I wonder if we might break it down a bit. Uh, we'll break it down into four simple sections for God's glory and your edification, I pray. First of all, Moses gets out of the gate and begins by pointing us to the everlasting God. Verse one, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It would make sense, right, if we are trying to gain a bigger and clearer perspective on God and on the world that we actually begin with God himself. After all, it's the way the Bible, the greatest story ever told begins, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. This is his story. Moses addresses this God as Elohim, which simply translates God of power and creation. It's a theme that runs throughout the psalm. And he recognizes what theologians call the eternality of God, his everlasting nature. And to say that God is eternal is to say that God has no beginning and no end. To say that God is eternal means that he is the uncreated one, the uncaused cause. It's to say that God is not limited by time and space. He exists outside of those restraints and restrictions, right? Before the earth was formed from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
We heard it read earlier this morning from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40 that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And thinking about this aspect and attribute of God, I really do think one of the, the common mistakes that we can make as Christians is thinking too little of God. Not only not thinking about him enough, but the, the content that we underestimate him, we undervalue him. And so passages like Isaiah 40 and Psalm 90 are in the Bible, they're in the Bible to rouse us out of this puny, wimpy, apathetic vision of God. Friends, God is everlasting. He is older than the earth. He is older than time. He is going to outlast nations and world economies. He's going to outlast all of my problems and all of your problems. And, and that idea, just, just think about how that change in perspective might affect how you approach your days. To know that God has always been and evermore shall be. And there's a lot of things that we hope will last forever. But the truth is they are not as resilient as we hope that they would be, whether that's our physical health, a stable economy, healthy relationships, a predictable, amenable political atmosphere and dialogue. But if we hope in the everlasting God, we hope in something, in, in someone who is more resilient, more enduring, and more powerful than any of those things ever will be. Moses cleverly couples this eternality, transcendent eternality of God with his identification of God as the dwelling place of his people from verse one. And in that sense, the stakes go up even more because here we've got this transcendent, everlasting God who sees it pleasing to actually be the shelter and the, and the dwelling place of a particular people. Now that, that is the right perspective about who God is. So as we consider God, the eternal everlasting God, we are brought to a place that John Calvin recognized hundreds of years before we met here this morning when he said it's evident that, that man never arrives at true self-knowledge before he has looked into the face of God and then comes away to look at himself. And that is exactly the direction that Psalm 90 takes us into this second section dealing with the finitude and the frailty of human beings. Every one of us in this room, men and women, boys and girls, are both finite and frail. Verse three recognizes that we're returned to dust. Verse four sets against time a thousand years in your sight or but as yesterday. You sweep these days away like a flood, like a dream, like grass renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and in the evening it fades. And, and this is really the great contrast of Psalm 90. The author is contrasting in, in stark words and vivid imagery the eternality of God and the finitude of human beings. 
And this, this means a lot of things for us. First of all, it means that, that we are not going to live forever, at least not in the form that we exist today. We will, all of us, be returned to the dust. Verse three. This reference is, is most certainly informed by the early Genesis narrative where man is both created from, formed out of the dust, and then returned to it. Verse four just escalates this contrast between God and man by speaking to the element of time. For a thousand years, a thousand years, if you could imagine, in your sight are but as yesterday. It's kind of like the fictional story that's told by John Ortberg about a cheeky economist who reads a passage like this and is really taken by it. And he gets the opportunity to ask God directly. He says, Lord, is it really true that a thousand years for us is like one minute to you? And the Lord says, yes, that's true. The economist then said, well, in that case, does, does that mean that a million dollars to me and to us is like one penny to you? The Lord says, well, yes, I suppose that's true. The economist then says, can you give me one of those pennies? <laughs> the Lord paused, looked at the economist and said, you know what, sure. Wait here just a minute while I go get it. <laughs> it's interesting, as much as we might try, as much as we might hope, as badly as we might want to stretch the, the hours into days, the days into years, the years into centuries, we just can't do it. In fact, time seems to, to, to slip away quicker and quicker every year. I, I celebrated a birthday earlier this week, and I'm sure you can attest to this fact that the older you get, the more and more it seems like time is just slipping through our empty hands. Verses five and six just press the point further by leveraging some some beautiful figurative language that's loaded with meaning. You sweep them away as with a flood. I'm sure we've all seen, if you've not seen in person, the, the devastating images of floods that carry large debris, vehicles, and even homes away like toys in our children's bathtubs. Our years, he also says, are like a dream come and gone in a moment. They're like grass for six. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and it withers. Now, what is, what is he doing here? What is Moses trying to do with all of these images and this figurative language? What he's trying to do is he's trying to, to shake up this short-sighted perspective about God and about life. He's calling us to, to a disposition of honesty about who God is in contrast to who we are, and he's calling us to a posture of humility. We are not as in control of our worlds as we think. We are not as invulnerable as we think. And in the end, the stark reality is that death will come for us all. And with that, the heaviness of this psalm starts to settle. And if we keep reading, it presses even further. I wonder if you, you picked up a very simple word that introduced verses three and verse five. You might look at it again. He says, you return man to dust, verse three. 
Verse five, you sweep them away. In other words, it's the everlasting God who is the one taking the action here. It's not simply that, that we are in our nature frail and finite. That's true, but, but Psalm 90 isn't just teaching us what life is like. It's not just reporting the facts. It's teaching us why. Why is life so fleeting and frail and vain at points? Why do we die? And the next section of the psalm tells us with sobriety, the answer is God's settled wrath. We experience the frailty of life and the certainty of death because of God's intense, settled wrath. We can't escape it. We have to press on verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. The phrase brought to an end literally means to, to be consumed or to be finished, which means that we as sinful human beings in the end are consumed and brought to an end by the wrath of God. Genesis 3, again, so much of Psalm 90 follows the, the whole trajectory of the story of Scripture at the fall of Adam and Eve. We have literally an era of death that is ushered in. Their disobedience to God and our subsequent disobedience to God results in God's judgment and wrath. And this, this is not just an Old Testament concept. Romans 5 is just one example affirms that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, we might give way that most of us, many of us in the room, would affirm that we're sinners. We've sinned this past week. We've probably even sinned this morning. But if we keep going, verse eight of Psalm 90 really turns up the heat. Look at it again. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's heavy. I mean, you, we're pretty good at fooling people. We're even pretty good at fooling ourselves as it relates to matters of sin and the heart. You might be fooling your spouse right now. You might be fooling your parents. You might be fooling your pastors. But there is absolutely no posing, no front, nothing secret to the all-knowing, all-seeing, everlasting God of the universe. Everything. Every perverse thought in the quiet of your mind Every act of covetousness when you look at another family and long for that life. Every outburst of passive aggressive anger that only your wife and children suffer under. Every secret sin. Before the everlasting God, we are laid bare and that reality should give us pause. Now, with that heaviness and sobriety, 
I do think it's important that we talk a little bit more about the wrath of God. Here's why, because if you're like me, you might associate wrath or the word wrath with this kind of knee-jerk, impulsive, unmeasured, self-serving fury. And that's probably because that's how we express anger all too often, right? If you have children, you know what I mean. But remember the context of the psalm. God is not a man. He's, he's not like us. That's, that's one of the major themes of the psalm. And the same is true for God's wrath. God's wrath is a settled wrath. It's not impulsive. It's measured. And it's just. I mean, we think about the perfection and the goodness of creation, the worth of a perfect, eternal God set against the backdrop of human rebellion. The wrath of God takes on a whole new meaning. But it is Nevertheless, terrifying. Verse nine continues this bleak picture. For all our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70, at best 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. And then The question, perhaps to end all questions, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? One of the most famous sermons of all time is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by the New England Puritan Jonathan Edwards. He puts it this way. The black clouds of God's wrath, full of the dreadful storm, now hang directly over your head. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher until an outlet is given. Your guilt, Edward says, is constantly increasing and you are every day storing up more wrath for yourself. So we have the the finitude and frailty of our existence before a God whose wrath is settled, where do you possibly go from here? And it's in this final section of Psalm 90 where we see the answer to that question, where we observe humble, heartfelt petitions and pleas for God to act. In light of God's eternality, in light of our finitude and sin in light of his settled wrath against us. Humanity is left simply in a place of need. We need God's help. We need him to act. And this reality is expressed in six petitions that we will look at briefly. And they begin in verse 12. The first petition, teach us. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, this isn't just an ask for God to give us, you know, like a divine advanced algebra lesson. This is, this is an ask for the right point of view about us and about life. It's a petition for God to grant sobriety and humility to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. So we need God to teach us The second petition, have pity on us. This 
plea, return, O Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a desperate call to God, and it should take our minds back to verse 3, where the Lord is said to be the one who's returning man to the dust as an act of judgment against their sin. Now the psalmist returns the question, and he says, oh, oh but Lord, would you return? Would you relent of your settled anger? Will you have pity on us sinners and show us mercy? Have pity on us. Third, satisfy us. Satisfy us, verse 14, in the morning. With what? With your steadfast love. That's God's covenant love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Again, there's a, a repeated phrase there, all of our days. Back in verse 9, our days, all of our days are said to pass away under the wrath of God, which of course is true. But if God would extend his covenant love as an act of mercy, then rejoicing would surely follow. And as we start thinking about these pleas of desperation for God to act, we really start to, to center in on the central message at the heart of Psalm 90. We might say it this way, that God's saving work towards sinners satisfies God's settled wrath against sinners. Only God's saving work towards sinners will satisfy his settled wrath against sinners. And, and these petitions, these prayers at the end of the psalm model both the appropriate posture and the appropriate response toward this eternal holy God of Psalm 90, namely crying out to him to act on our behalf, to do something about this plight because only God's saving work towards sinners satisfies his settled wrath against sinners. We are in need. The year was 1975, and in that year, a child named Raymond Dunn Jr. was born in New York State. And because of a skull fracture and severe oxygen deprivation in utero, Raymond was born with just a variety of disabilities. On top of that, he had severe food allergies, so much so that it limited him to, to be able to consume only one food, a meat-based formula that was produced by Gerber Foods. Unfortunately, 10 years later, and unbeknownst to the company, in 1985, Gerber stopped producing the formula. So Carol, Raymond's mom, did I think what any mom would do and began buying up as much of this formula as she could possibly find. She stocked it, she stored it, gave it to her son, but unfortunately, a couple years later, they, as you might expect, they ran out. And in desperation, she appealed to Gerber for help because without this food, literally, this child would die. And the company responded with great heroism. They volunteered hundreds and hundreds of hours. They brought out all the old equipment. They set up production lines and they continued to produce the formula just for this special boy. And that effort preserved his life for a number of years. Because Raymond was not able to save himself. Not even his courageous mother could produce the formula. They needed help. They needed someone from the outside to do something that they could not do as it related to this matter of life and death. And this is not unlike the posture of the psalmist and the posture for each one of us. Humanity is helpless and in need. 
We are unable to save ourselves, unable to satisfy the fierce wrath of God against our sin. And so the proper response, the only response to that settled wrath is to cry out to God to to work on our behalf. This humble, heartfelt petition continues in verse 15 when the psalmist says, Lord, make us glad. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. What a prayer that is. Even amidst sovereign affliction, the psalmist knows that if God would be pleased, gladness is actually not out of reach. In fact, he goes so far as to say, Lord, for as many years as we've seen evil under the oppression of the Egyptians and the uncertainty and disobedience of the wilderness, give us an equal proportion of gladness on the other side. Fifth, is the petition for God to show his work and his power. Show us your work, verse 16. We need you to move on our behalf. In other words, he's saying only God's saving work towards sinners will satisfy his settled wrath against sinners. So Lord, please show us your work. And then finally, and very similarly, The petition is that God would grant his favor. Give us your favor. Such an interesting word here. It could, could also be translated beauty or approval or even grace. Without a work of grace, our days are spent in vanity and there is no hope. But if God would give his favor, our life and work need not be in vain. And then the psalm ends, which begs a really big question, I think. Will God answer the prayer? Will he respond to this this plea for him to do a saving work? Will he answer the cries for pity and purpose and and favor? Of course, throughout Israel's history, we know that, that God, in a lot of different ways, answered these prayers, different times, different ways. But the clearest evidence that God acts in a merciful and a saving way on behalf of a frail, finite, condemned people is found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, here it is, from the wrath of God. For because of one man's trespass, namely Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus? Dear ones, the gospel is God's ultimate and final answer to the petitions of Psalm 90. Because it's the gospel that makes our hearts the very dwelling place of God. It's the gospel that that opens up our eyes to the wonder of God's eternality. It's the gospel that most clearly demonstrates God's covenant love for his people. And it's the gospel that overwhelms us with this sense of compassion and, and buoyant joy. It's the gospel that gives our lives and our days and our work purpose. And it's in the gospel that we see how God's settled wrath is satisfied by his saving work. How? 
Because in the gospel, may we wrap our minds around this, the eternal son of God, the uncreated one, co-equal in the eternal essence of the Father and the Son, the eternal Son of God condescended heaven for earth and took on the full measure of human frailty. That is amazing. He lived a perfect life, and on the cross, Jesus Christ took the full measure of the weight of God's wrath laid out in Psalm 90 upon himself. And in his resurrection, God shows that that sacrifice was indeed sufficient to satisfy his wrath on behalf of my sin and your sin and the sin of every human person. So when we put our faith in Jesus and his saving work, we can escape out from under the wrath of God. Death will not have the final word because Jesus offers a better one. And so if you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, maybe you've been kicking the idea around, maybe you've been in the pews for years, I would plead with you, consider Christ this morning. Consider him. And consider the the sober reality that if Psalm 90 is true, that apart from Christ, you sit even now under the wrath of God. And... Understand the good news of the gospel, that God in Christ that has provided everything you need to escape that judgment. So embrace that saving work today. And for those of us who are in the beloved, we've already talked about so many ways that this passage can speak to us in our day-to-day lives, but I wonder if we might look to Jesus afresh, that we might humble ourselves under the majesty of God's eternality, learning to number our days to gain a heart of wisdom. May we continue in our work, our work unto the Lord, which the scriptures tell us because of God's grace to us are not in vain. We don't labor in vain. May we grow in in a sense of contentment and joy because God has extended his steadfast love, his covenant love for us. And may we continue to persevere in faith knowing that God's saving work towards sinners has indeed in the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning work satisfied his settled wrath against sinners. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we stand today as recipients of your saving work and apart from that, Lord, we know that our lives would be swept away as in a flood. We know that we would labor and toil in complete vanity. But because you have extended your steadfast love to us, because you have relented in your anger, because you have poured that wrath out upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we can stand as a people who are your dwelling place. May we rejoice at that and all your kindness in Jesus' name. Amen.